agree with me in prayer is I love the word of the Lord and I want this to be able to go out and accomplish everything God sent to do as the word promises you bring my lapel down just a touch and so Lord we pray over the word tonight but we would love your word and we remember the parable of the seed and the sower which will be in here tonight in this sermon as well but we ask you Lord that every person that's going to be hearing this we ask that the precious Holy Spirit Lord to prepare them I'm obviously people here tonight those that live stream but Lord, we pray even those that are going to be hearing this other countries we get you know people listening all over through the internet Lord I pray that your Holy Spirit right now would invade where people are and help us to have good fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives Lord that you would prepare us and I pray that you would help us by the Holy Spirit to have eyes to see and ears to hear eyes and ears of the Spirit anointed eyes anointed ears and that we would be good fertile soil we're not going to be rocky soil, but we're going to be good, fertile soil for the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And let the Word go out, Lord, through me tonight as living seeds of truth that are sown out um, into good soil and watered by the Holy Spirit and will take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains until Jesus comes. We ask that the, this precious Holy Spirit, the winds of the Spirit, will carry this seed everywhere it's supposed to go. And, Lord, that your mighty angels will watch over it to make sure as the Bible promises the word of the Lord will go forward and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do and Lord we bind the enemy in Jesus name anything that would try to hinder we bind him now it will not hinder in Jesus mighty name we pray all of this we bless you and we thank you for hearing and answering this now in Jesus name we pray alright so as we get into <clears throat> this is part 13 of this series uh, I'm doing called Mikdash. Now Mikdash means sanctuary in Hebrew. So this is dealing with God's sanctuary. And there's a lot I've been dealing with in this, but tonight I'm gonna talk about the glory. And this is gonna be uh, quite a bit of teaching, but I know that you guys love the word of the Lord and love teaching. And so I'm gonna come more as a teacher tonight. And um, anyway, so let me just go through this and we're gonna, I've, got some diagrams there for you guys but first and foremost the Bible says in Romans 3:23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory and so I've taught on this enough to where I believe that you guys are so familiar I'm just going to touch on this but we know that one of the greatest things that was lost was the glory of the Lord in the Garden of Eden um, the Bible says that God wraps himself with light as a garment obviously that's the glory he created Adam and Eve in his image and as he created Adam and Eve in his image, there's no doubt that there was some kind of a glory. And I'm talking about the glory as the manifest presence. And it's interesting because in the Hebrew, it says about Adam and Eve that before they fell, that they were naked and knew no shame. But the word naked is arom, A-R-O-M. But then that means partially nude. And then after they fell in um, Genesis 3, it says they were naked and they hid. They were afraid and covered themselves with fig leaves. And the word there for naked is erom, E-R-O-M, and it means completely nude, which is really interesting because it's obvious that even though they were physically naked, there was some kind of a glory that wrapped them, a presence of God around them, that when they sinned, the glory lifted. And how many knows when you're in the presence of God, there is some kind of a security, like a security blanket, and there's a comfort in God's presence. And they never knew life without that until they sinned and the glory lifted and so when the glory of God left Adam and Eve uh, were afraid and when Jesus came 
uh, it, it's interesting to study all this out. I'm touching on it because I've taught it so much to you guys in depth. But Jesus came and died on a cross nude, okay, so that the glory of God can come back to the church. And so we know from the scriptures that it's through the blood of Jesus. The blood was applied to the mercy seat, and that's where the glory came in the tabernacle. And so anyway, tonight I'm talking about getting into the glory, but we're going to take the scenic route to that, okay? So we're going to cover some different points getting there. But I'm going to talk for, for a few minutes about the seven churches of Asia that were listed in Revelation 2 and 3. I encourage you to read over Revelation 2 and 3 over this week and kind of take this home, maybe take some notes and, and do some Bible studies. But if you read Revelation 2 and 3, there were several churches at the time. It's interesting that a lot of people have never been taught anything about church history. And some of the things you tell people, they're just their mouths hang open. And one of the things that the early church was never in a building, the early church was home fellowships. And that's just a historic fact. And there were hundreds. There wasn't seven. And so it was interesting that Jesus picked seven that he was going to reveal to John to send each one of those seven a letter. And if you look at the diagram there, this is in Asia Minor. And you can see at the top, this would be what we would call Turkey today. And there's Istanbul. And then you see on the, on the left, there's Athens, Greece. And then what's circled in red would be the Isle of Patmos. That's where John got his revelation. But look at the seven churches. And you go from Ephesus at the bottom left up to Smyrna, then Pergamos, and then back down to the right. And that's how Jesus had John send those letters to those churches. And just to give you an idea, all of them were in the area that we know as Turkey today. <coughs> now, just to open this up, I can't dwell on this too long, but what is sad is that the religious wall that the institutionalized church creates in so many people and hopefully i'll be able to cover this as i go uh, and it'll make sense but so many people have grown up in the institutionalized denominational church which has taught them things like healing is not for today it's taught them that you know deliverance is not for today it's taught them all kinds of, of strange things that are unbiblical. The gifts are not for today. Taught them against tongues. And it's sad because now, because they've been falsely indoctrinated, there's like a wall between them and what they could have with the Lord, but there's a wall there that's been put in place by the institutionalized church. And it's sad because many times the church has become in many places so powerless that it is only a shell of what it was supposed to be, and it's now just a referral service. And I'm going to come to that later. But God wants his glory in the church, and he wants people to be able to have their needs met in the church. All right, there's four applications of this church letter, and I can't dwell on this too long, but I, you guys have heard me talk about the pardes. This is the the hebrew hermeneutics okay which is just a study of scripture and there's four levels and this is really a great application no doubt the apostle paul would have used this but this is the way that you can study the word of god number one is called peshat and what that means it's basically just what you read at a surface level so you read the scripture and it's just what it says i mean if jesus said 
told Peter to go catch a fish and there'd be a coin in the mouth. It was, that's all there was to the story. There's nothing more. It was just a fish <laughs> with a coin in the mouth, okay? But Remez is that there's a hint of more. There's more to this story than just that. And then you get into Drosh and that's more of like a sermon. This is where you can pull from several different places out of the Bible and you begin to teach and instruct in a way that really helps people to grow spiritually on a personal level. And then finally, the last level is called Sod, and this is Revelation. And this is where the Apostle Paul said, Behold, I tell you a mystery. And God brings deeper revelation that only the Holy Spirit could show you. And so when you look at these seven letters that were written to these seven churches, all of them, every one of these churches actually existed. Even though they were home fellowships, they were literal churches that existed in that day. And so each one of these letters was to that specific church, and it had revelation in it for that church. So number one, that would be part A. It's just the, the basic level. But the second level, Remes, there's a hint of more. Each one of those letters, all of the churches today, and they've ever existed, we can read that, and we can get something from it. Amen? And so when you study those, it's really going to speak to us collectively as the body of Christ. Now, Josh, this is a sermon level. This is where you're really going to get some personal application, and you're going to learn from these. So when you read over the seven letters of the churches that Jesus sent through John, you're on a personal level going to be able to get a lot out of that and grow spiritually and learn from all seven of those levels. But there's also a sowed level. There is a revelation. If these were written in any other order or any other churches, it would not work. But Jesus, in his incredible manifold wisdom, had this documented to where not only is it for that individual church, not only is it for every church, and not only is it for you and I on a personal level, but also it is a prophetic timeline down through the church age, which is in just an incredible revelation. Isn't God amazing? And so you can get so much out of this. Now, this is the prophetic timeline. And this is all going to make sense here in a moment. The church of Ephesus, prophetically, was the church. I'm going to just think about this for a minute. Jesus' ministry was three and a half years that he walked the earth. And his disciples, many were around him. When Jesus ascended before he did, he had appeared to over 500 people. Think about that for a minute. So he had a lot of followers, but there were 12 that he chose to be with him. There were 70 that he sent out. So there was a group of people around him. But these disciples that stayed with Jesus all the time, followed him, they saw his ministry. They saw all the time the sick being healed, demons driven out of people, miracles happening. And Jesus himself taught them. He taught them the word, and he, he showed them the power of God. And so... The church of Ephesus represents the early church. This was the church that the very people that Jesus himself discipled, those people now planted these churches. And I mean, you had Peter's shadow healing the sick. You had such an incredible move of God among these churches that it was very common for the gifts of the Spirit to be in operation. It would not have been uncommon to see somebody come in sick and be healed, to see somebody delivered. In fact, Philip went to Samaria, and it reports that very thing broke out in the city. 
And then Peter and John had to go and follow up on his ministry. But this Ephesus was from AD 33 to 100. This was the church that was directly planted by Jesus through his disciples. So we can call this an apostolic church. We can call this a revival church. This was a church full of life and power. People were excited to come. You never knew what God was going to do. You know, we're, we're liable to see today a crippled get up and walk, you know. It was just a miraculous church. The warning to Ephesus, though, was this, that they were beginning to wane. They were losing their first love, and they were beginning to lose the revival fire. And the Lord warned them. And so Satan now, he sees this, and he's determined he's going to stop the church. And so this leads into the, the next letter, which was to Smyrna. And the Lord warned the church um, of Smyrna for 10 days. And this speaks of the 10 Roman emperors from Nero to Diocletian. That those 10 emperors violently persecuted the church from AD 100 to 300. Nero was responsible for beheading Paul. And all the way through to Diocletian, I mean, we hear the stories, all of us are familiar with the Christians that were thrown to the lions and all that in the Roman Colosseum and were, were dipped in oil and, and hung up on posts and set on fire to light the streets of Rome. And it was just, it was a violent persecution, which some of it revolved around the fact that, that the emperors wanted to, to be worshipped. And the reason they did that was to have some kind of a camaraderie and some kind of a unity under their jurisdiction that they ruled and so they would have things in place where you would go once a year and and just take a pinch of incense and throw it on the altar to the emperor and but you know Christians could not do that with a clear conscience they felt that they were worshiping another God or worshiping another Lord and so it cost them their life and so the church of Smyrna was prophetically from AD 100 to 300 and it was the church that was violently persecuted and so Satan was trying to destroy the church he was using these Roman emperors and of course their military forces to kill as many Christians as possible but how many knows that it seems like whenever Satan tries to destroy the church the church still thrives it's interesting because even today in China and other places where there's great persecution the church is thriving in the fires of revival people getting saved and healed and delivered and just incredible things so this was Satan's attack but then Satan soon realized that it wasn't working every time he would kill one it seemed like two others sprung up and so he's getting frustrated so he decides he's going to change his tactics and this is the church of Pergamos. Now, Smyrna means like myrrh and, and all that. And it's the suffering. But Pergamos means marriage. And Satan from AD 300 to 590 was going to make an attempt now to pervert Christianity. An ungodly mixture. And Constantine came to power. <coughs> he had some kind of a vision, some kind of a, a so-called conversion but I can't get into this rabbit trail but nonetheless he was officiating at the pagan temples and then kind of officiating among what he believed was Christianity but the true Christians knew that this was not of God and they went underground but Constantine began to appoint his cronies to 
some kind of a, a quote Christian movement that ultimately became the Roman Catholic system. And in this, you had Constantine and the next two emperors, they began to make Christianity the state religion. And this perverted things because now, I want you to understand this, now Christianity, as far as Roman Catholicism was concerned, which is never true Christianity, but now people could join Roman Catholicism thinking that they were a Christian, but there was never a new birth that was required. There was never repentance of sin. And so it didn't matter that people were out there sleeping around or going to pagan temples or living how they were living. They could now come to a Roman Catholic system and be called Christians and taught as though they were Christians. And it brought the world and the church together and it was a perversion. And so what Satan could not accomplish through using Roman emperors to try to crush Christianity, now he says, I'm going to change my tactic and I'm going to pervert it. And unfortunately, it worked in many cases. But again, how many knows that God always has a remnant? It may be a small group of people, but just like in the days of Elijah, God has got 7,000 that have not bowed their knee to Baal. He's always got a remnant in the earth. And even during that time, there was groups of people that have gone down in history as being kind of heroes of the faith that, that were people like um, the, the Waldenses and the Albigenses and people you haven't heard of the Lollards and others, that they refused to go along with this perverse form of Christianity. They loved God, they loved his word, and they were going to preach the gospel and live the word. And unfortunately, Roman Catholic popes hunted them down and killed them. Now, during this time, rose up Thyatira, which I'm going to read here in a moment. This is the rise of the Jezebel spirit, the queen of heaven. Oh, my goodness. From AD 590 to 1517, came a thousand years we know as the dark ages and Thyatira was once called Semiramis and you can do your own study on Nimrod and all that but anyway this was a perverse thing now Roman Catholicism has come to power it is a state-sponsored institutionalized um, big air quotes form of Christianity and it seemed to rule the world I mean kings were afraid of them and during this time, though, the Catholic Church began to embrace all kinds of paganism, idol worship. I mean, to this day, I love, I love Catholic people. I pray that they come to know Jesus. But to this day, in many places, you will see Catholic leaders and Catholic followers that will literally bow down to idols and pray to them and worship them to this day. But paganism crept in, and it was a Jezebel spirit. And it was a great perversion. This went on for a thousand years. Then after that, and I'm going to talk about Sardis here in a moment. God began to move. Things had already been moving this direction. You had great preachers like John Knox, okay, and others. But how many have heard of Martin Luther? All right. A German monk lived in the early 1500s. And he had had enough of it. And he saw all the perversion that Rome had. The worship of the relics. He saw that, that how Rome used the fear of hell to control people. And used um, purgatory to, to get finances. And what was the straw that broke the camel's back. Was that during this day. Somebody could go to their priest. And could give their priest X amount of dollars. 
and the priest would give them like a, a ticket, if you will, which was an indulgence, and now they could go out and do something, maybe sleep with a prostitute and go back home because they paid the priest who sanctioned it. And Martin Luther had had enough. And so he wrote his 95 Thesis and nailed it on the door there in Wittenberg and started the Reformation, which was already kind of brooding under the scenes. How many knows when God's doing something in the earth that others feel the rumbling okay this was like you know the the fumes were already there this was just now the match was lit and the explosion happened and so Martin Luther began this great reformation and as this started now the Roman Catholic system felt very threatened they started the Jesuits to 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 infiltrate and and to pretend to be Protestants and try to destroy it from within and there was wars that happened but nonetheless, it prevailed. Sardis speaks of that split from Catholicism to Protestantism, Protestantism now, the denominational church. Now, the problem is, is that even though there was a split off of Rome, because now Martin Luther understood, hey, we need to understand that it is by faith in Christ that we're saved. See, the Roman Catholic system taught nothing about that they, in fact they forbid they, they forbid people to read the word for themselves now that you know they were teaching that you just had to be right with the roman catholic system if you if you did what they said and didn't do what they said not to do and you you were a good little catholic you were on your way to heaven and that's the way it was taught and martin luther understood that that it is by grace it is by faith in christ that you're saved there has to be a new birth and so he began to teach this and preach this. It, it was very radical at that time. And the Protestant Reformation began to really take off. And this is the denominational church that is a result of that. We see all over the world the, the Lutherans and, and many other denominations. But this goes back to this Sardis time from 1517 to 1750. All right, the next one is Philadelphia. This was from 1750 to 1905. I love the Church of Philadelphia here. This is the Revival Church. This is the Restoration Church. This is the church where uh, during these times of 1750 to 1905, God began to really pour out his spirit. In the mid-1700s, remember Wesley and um, Edwards and Whitfield and the first great awakening that really shook our nation at that time. And really paved the way, I believe, for um, us to become an independent nation as we are today. You had the great revivals that took place in uh, you know, around 1800 with the Cambridge Revival. Remember Brother Zach taught on that. And then mid-1800s with Wesley and Brother Nash and the Second Great Awakening. And then around 1900, the Great Revival in Wales and Azusa. This is a time of a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And just as the church was birthed on Pentecost by the Holy Spirit being poured out, now God is reviving and restoring back. And this was the time frame and on into our day that through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the gospel is being preached with power again among the nations. Now the restoration of the healing ministry, the restoration of deliverance, the restoration of the gifts, Everything that the devil had stole, and it seems like Sardis, the institutionalized church, is okay with that, but the church of Philadelphia is a church 
that is being restored back to what God originally intended the church to be. And then you have the great warning of Laodicea, the last church, which is the last day church. You could call this the apostate church. The Laodiceans were lukewarm and away from God. And we see in our day that there are many that, that are backsliding and there's a falling away and people are accepting things they shouldn't and getting far away from the Lord. That was a warning in Scripture. So I've given you the prophetic timeline. And during the day and time that we live, you have the institutionalized church today, which is represented by Sardis. You have the revival church of today represented by Philadelphia, those that want to see true biblical Christianity restored. But then you also have the Laodicean church, which are falling away, backsliding, embracing, for example, homosexuality, uh, ordaining homosexual ministers. They, they embrace abortion. Uh, they're falling away from the faith. They're apostate church. We're seeing all three of those. All of it is kind of coming to fruition in the day that we live. And the coming of the Lord is near. I'm, I'm a bit of an end time prophecy buff. I love end time prophecy. And I've studied it in depth. And I tell you, just as a matter of fact, that there are no other signs to be fulfilled for the rapture. And we are very near the coming of the Lord. And so I say that, that we need to be, make sure that we're ready, okay? So I'm going to read you some of these tonight. Uh, let's look at the warning to Thyatira, which represented the Dark Ages, when Rome was, was bringing in all of this paganism and all this filth. It's interesting to me, and some of you guys will understand what I'm saying, even through the 90s and up to our day right now, how Satan is trying a similar tactic. See, when we go back and study history and study the word, then we can be forewarned and forearmed and we recognize things. But a lot of people haven't done that. And just like I told you a moment ago that there was a time that Satan used from Nero to Diocletian, used those Roman emperors to try to crush. There was this persecution. That didn't work. And so what did he do? He tried to bring a perversion. And this is interesting to me because... God poured out his spirit so powerfully in the mid to late 80s in the Argentine revival. Through the 90s, remember all the great revivals that had taken place. And on into around 2005, where they really began to wane. But during that time, there was such a persecution. Satan raised up people on the radio. Uh, you know, through the internet, of course, was something that was new. But raised, books were written there was just a great persecution that was against the move of God. There always is and always will be. But here's what's sad. Dovetailing that revival where literally millions of people's lives were changed. Okay? It was said about the Argentine revival that in the height of the revival, there were more people being saved in regions of, Ar the, of Argentina than there were new actual physical births of children taking place. There were so many people getting saved. Literally, entire cities at a time would come to know the Lord it was incredible and so there's this great sweeping revival and Satan tried everything he could to raise up as many revival critics to write as many books as many you know false teachers rising it's not of God it's of the devil and all this but it never worked but now I see how he went from trying to crush it to trying to pervert things 
And now I'm looking at a time where I'm just shaking my head at places that are accepting things in their church that our founding fathers would roll over in their grave if they, if they saw it. And so now Satan is trying to move to create a mixture and a perversion in a lot of places to accept things of the world. All right, so the warning to Thyatira, Jesus reveals himself here as the son of God whose eyes are a flame of fire. In every letter, there's a different way Jesus appears. His feet are like burnished bronze. Bronze is judgment. He said, I know your deeds, your love and your faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late greater than that of first. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat, eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. And immorality not just speaks of sexual immorality but many times in the scripture it speaks of worshiping idols. And so it's like a, God considers when people are worshiping idols and worshiping him, it's like an adulterous affair, if you will. And so verse 22, behold, I will throw her onto a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds and I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they are called, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. We're living in a time where we need to hold fast to what we have in Christ, okay? He who overcomes, he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule with a rod of iron. And the vessels of potter are broken to pieces. Also, or as I also have received authority from my father, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. And so we know that the Jezebel spirit is pervasive. And we know that in Revelation, it's seen as the whore of Babylon in Revelation 17. And so therefore, we can deduct that it's definitely going to be an end time prevailing spirit in our society. And we see that today with all kinds of, of idolatry and all kinds of sexual perversions, the embracing of homosexuality, the whole transgender movement, all of this, it is a Jezebel spirit big time. But the way Jezebel moves is not only through idolatry and immorality and this, this mixture and this perversion in churches, but here's some other things to consider. Jezebel has to do with illegitimate authority. And so, for example, in homes where you have a husband that's passive and a wife that runs the show and wears the pants, that is a Jezebel spirit. And I don't think people realize how much of an abomination these things are to God and how much he hates it. Hello? And you have rebellion that's so rampant in our society. I've said many times I believe it to be so that rebellion in America is the strongman and the stronghold. You see it everywhere in our society. It's pervasive. I even spent time with a man of God that I really love, and he's been in the ministry since the 60s. And he told me this. This was his words. He said that today, he says, he's, he says not, he doesn't think it's even possible for many people to really truly pastor churches nowadays because of the rebellion. He said that people want to view church as some kind of democracy where everybody gets a vote. And he said that it's something where um, 
you know, if, if a pastor has to deal with sin, many times the people will join with the sinner and rebel against the leader. And this is, he's talking about here this rebellion. And see, Jezebel has to do with rebellion and division, homes out of order and ungodly control. Anytime you see ungodly control, where somebody's exerting manipulation, intimidation, domination, in any way, you're dealing with a biblical definition of witchcraft, and it is a Jezebel spirit. So this is pervasive, and there's a warning to those that are involved in a Jezebel spirit. The Lord said, I gave her time to repent. God will give people space to repent, but many times, unfortunately, they won't because they don't want to give up that false sense of control and they don't want to be told what to do by anybody. And so he said, Behold, I will throw them on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery in the tribulation unless they repent. So there'll be a judgment from the Lord. All right. So this speaks prophetically of that time in the church age of Thyatira, the dark ages, where all that paganism and that immorality and the weirdness had crept into Roman Catholicism. But even today, we see pervasive in society a Jezebel spirit. It's unbelievable. But this is really what I wanted to get to is the warning to Sardis. Sardis speaks of the denominational church, mainline denominations. Every one of them, and I'm not picking on any because I'm saying every one of them, have pet doctrines and traditions of men. They have things that are not necessarily biblical, but yet, it goes from parent to child, from parent to child, and it cycles down the generations. So I'm going to give you something interesting about Sardis. This isn't in your notes, but I want you just to hear me. Because this will make sense here in a moment. Each one of these churches has idioms in that letter that pertain to that city. And the people that lived there would have understood the references it's like I gave this example already but for example if, if somebody was to to write something about America <clears throat> they were to say in reference to New York that your towers will not fall again or something like that we would all know what they're talking about but if a thousand years from now if somebody read that they would not know what that reference was they'd have to go back and study it out so in Sardis 700 years before this letter was written, Sardis was one of the greatest cities in the world. Hear me tonight. It had a reputation for being one of the oldest. It had a strategic travel location between Pergamos, Smyrna, Ephesus, Philadelphia, and Phrygia. It went, there was this travel route where there was commerce and trade and because of that, Sardis was also extremely wealthy. And it's interesting because even the mythology, you guys are familiar, some with Greek mythology, but even the mythology of this region, think about this. There was uh, Greek mythology about this area said there was a king named Midas, and everybody's heard of the Midas touch of uh, Phrygia in Asia Minor, Asia Minor for his hospitality of Seder. There was a, a, a you know, Greek god, Dionysus, offered to grant Midas anything he wished for. So he wished that everything he touched became gold. 
and soon regretted it because his food and water became gold as well. <laughs> and so he was instructed by Dionysus to go bathe in the river, and it was said afterward that the sands of the river contained gold. But this was a mentality in this region that even the sand has gold in it. It was this mentality that everything you touch will turn to gold. Does this make sense? So it was in one of the oldest cities, but it was also extremely prosperous. And the last bit here of a, a nugget I want to give you is Sardis was situated on a hill a thousand feet above a broad valley. This gave them a sense of security because if you were going to go capture this city as a military, you would have to figure out a way to scale these cliffs. So it appeared to be impregnable. The cliff of clay, though, at times would erode and give a crack to the city to be besieged. But the people were lulled to sleep in a false sense of confidence in their city that they shouldn't have had. So the city was besieged by the Persians in 549 B.C. The king of that time over Sardis, the king of Lydia of that time, they had such confidence in this cliff and, and all around them that they left unguarded the cliffs on three sides of the city. The Persians were trying to take it. So after a 14-day siege, Cyrus, this was in the days of Cyrus, offered a reward to any man who could find a way of scaling the apparently unscalable cliffs. One of the Persian soldiers noticed that one of the Lydian soldiers had lost his helmet and it goes rolling down the cliff. And so he's down there watching him. He sees him run down to get his helmet and run back up the cliff. And he says, okay, well, there's, there's the crack. That's how we're going to get in. So one of the Persian soldiers now goes back to his leader and says, I found a way in. So that very night, in the darkness of the night, the Persians conquered the city like a thief in the night and took it. And so this city was known as a place. Here in a moment, let me just show you. In 549, it fell to the Persians. In 501, it was burned by the Ionians. In 334, Alexander the Great took it. They surrendered to him. 322, taken by Antigonus. 214, fell to the Seleucids and later sided with Rome. But it, Sardis became synonymous with this. This is the point of all of that. Sardis became a place that had a reputation for pretensions that are unjustified. They put up pretensions to be great, but yet it wasn't great. Promise without performance, appearance without reality, a false confidence that heralded coming ruin. Does this make sense? Putting on airs, but yet at the end of the day, they couldn't measure up. So with that in mind, let me read this because this is going to make a lot of sense here in a moment when I talk about the denominational church of today. Revelation 3, 1, the angel of the church in Sardis writes, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I'll explain that later. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you're dead. Once again, pretentious, but not reality. Putting on a show that you're alive, but yet you're dead. 
Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which are about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember that what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. Remember the thief in the night. See, these, idiot, these, these, these references would make sense to them. And you will not know the hour that I come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. That's really insulting. How this whole city and how this whole church and those that meet, the Lord says, but you have a few. And that's sad. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, for I will not erase his name from the book of life. That's a scary thought. And I will confess his name before my father and before the, his angels. He who has near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Sardis was a place that appeared to be alive, but it was dead. It had appearance of being powerful, but it was weak. Mark 16, 15. And, he, and Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel. I want you to remember what I'm about to read to you right here. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Who's Jesus talking to? Me and you. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. These signs will accompany them that believe. Who's he talking to? Me and you. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. He said they will pick up serpents and drink deadly poison and won't hurt them. Now that's a reference of great protection. Back in those days when you traveled, there could be the fear of being bit by a snake, especially if you travel at night. And back then, those days, if somebody was going to try to kill another person, a poison being placed in their drink would be an easy way to do that. But the Lord says, I will supernaturally protect you. And then he says, and they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. All right, so let's look at this. Like Sardis, much of the Protestant church world is just a referral agency. Much of what we see in the denominational, the institutionalized church of today has become something that has a reputation for being alive, but it's dead. It's seen as something powerful, but it's weak. My question is, are the lost really getting saved or are you just moving a bunch of sheep around? Are people really repenting of sin and getting right with God or are they just playing church? Are people getting close to Jesus and on fire for God and growing in their prayer lives? Do the sick come and now it's just a referral agency to send them to a doctor because there's no power in the house to see the sick healed? Are the demonized being delivered? Are the gifts of the Spirit at work? So the question is, just like Sardis, as a denominational church, the institutionalized church, it's just a shell of what it's supposed to be. A referral agency. Pretensions unjustified. So let it be a warning to you and I. Today, are we among those? People say, well, I'm a Christian. I live out the word of God. Okay. 
then when's the last time you went out on the streets and told somebody about Jesus? I'm not trying to insult anybody or shoot this to anybody. This, this sermon goes out all over. But I'm saying as Christians, Jesus said to go into all the world and preach the gospel. People tell me, well, you know, I live out the word. Really? Are you witnessing? When's the last time that you laid hands on the sick and they recovered? Well, wait a second. Let's not dumb things down. Hello? Let's not dumb things down. This is the standard that Jesus has given us. We've seen many people get healed. When's the last time you saw somebody delivered of a demon? You've seen quite a bit of that. The problem is, is that Sardis has a reputation for being alive and having the truth, but it's just a shell. It's a place of pretensions, but very unjustified. Where's the power? Where's the life? And it reminds me of the Laodicean church, too. Revelation 3.16, so because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spew you or vomit you out of my mouth, is what it means. It's interesting about the Laodicean church, the last day church, the church that would be, uh, you know, in the last of the list before Jesus Christ comes, about that church, the Bible says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. What is the Lord doing outside the church? Why in the world is he knocking on the door? But we're seeing a lot of places today where Jesus is not in the midst thereof in power. And they don't want him to be because it'll mess up their little religion. But Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and him with me. So the question for all of us is, are we really living the word of God? I think that a lot of times people say, I believe the word, but they don't. They don't. They'll read it and, and somebody will say, well, do you believe that Jonah was, you know, swallowed by a big fish? Well, I believe that. Okay, well, do you believe in speaking in tongues, laying hands on the sick? No, I don't believe that. You don't believe the Bible. The problem that people have many times is not really with different groups that they're prejudiced against and that they hate. It's not really the groups. It's the Bible they have a problem with. It's the word. So do we dare to believe God's word? I believe the Bible. I believe I really do from Genesis to Revelation. I'm not asked to understand every little thing. I don't know how a few loaves of bread and, and a couple of fish will feed 5,000 men, not counting women and children. I don't understand that, but I believe it. I don't understand how a big fish can swallow a man and then vomit him back on the seashore. How does that work? But I believe it. I believe from Genesis 1 all the way through Revelation. And so here's what we're looking at in today. There's the Sardis Church, the denominational institutionalized church, just like the Pharisees of Jesus' day. The Pharisees were dead spiritually. They were an organized religion, and they persecuted Jesus. They hated him so much they wanted to murder him. You understand that? And every time that organized religion, that institutionalized church, that does away with the new birth, that does away with being filled with the Spirit, and it becomes something that's just an organized religion, 
Every time down through history, it has persecuted the true people of God who were smaller in number, who were a remnant, and who had to go underground. If you don't believe me, research it. But Sardis is the denominational church, the institutionalized church now that persecutes and comes against revival and the move of the Spirit of God. It's no different than what we've seen for 1,900 years or more. And so today, Jesus said to the church of Sardis, he said he appeared to them as the one that has the seven spirits of God. And this is what Malachi 4, 5, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, children to the fathers. So I will not come and smite the land with a curse, but I will send you that spirit of Elijah. And you can see that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah to perceive Christ's first coming. But again, it says, I will send this before the great and the terrible day. The great day was Christ's first coming. The terrible day is his second. So we're seeing again the Holy Spirit being poured out. The Bible says, in the last days I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And just as the early church, the church was birthed by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the Lord is bringing great restoration by the outpouring of the Spirit of God in our day. And I know that you know that, and you're in on it just like I am. But you know what? In this, the Bible talks about the spirit of Elijah and the sevenfold spirit of God. You know what that is? Isaiah 11, 2. The spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, revelation, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. The seven attributes of the Holy Spirit. This is a reference to Jesus coming with the fullness of his spirit. And then now getting to the glory of the Lord. Isaiah 60 verse 1 arise and shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you For behold darkness covers the earth deep darkness to people are we living in a time of darkness? I just I shared something on Facebook about some goofy couple that's trying to raise their little boy uh, As either a boy or girl. I mean the kids like looks like he's like two They're engendering in him such a confusion. He's not gonna know if he's a boy or girl they're raising him wearing a tutu and everything else, painting his nails. It's pathetic. But we're living in a time of great darkness and great confusion. But what does the Bible say in those times? Arise and shine, church. The true people of God, your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. That glory, look at what it says. Darkness will be over the people, but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will be on you. And nations will come to your light, kings to the brightness of your rising. So we're going to see in these latter days, the world is going to get darker, but yet the true people of God, I'm not talking about institutionalized religion. I'm talking about God's true people that are born again. You understand? Born again. Not religious, born again. See, the problem is, is a lot of places they teach that if you just sign some kind of a card saying you're a member of their church, you're going to heaven. Wrong. You've got to be born again. And the true people of God are going to have the glory arise and shine upon them. So let me give you a couple more things here. And what I've always felt very strongly is that the Lord has called not only me, but many others to, to preach this way. But, you know, people say, I want true biblical Christianity. Then roll up your sleeves and tell somebody about Jesus. Number one, if you want true Christianity, then, then get out there and win souls. Quit playing church. Quit having a little social club. And let's get out there and get in the harvest. Number two, 
quit believing false doctrine and start believing God that we're going to lay hands on the sick. How many times have people gone out from here and witnessed and there was somebody that had some pain in their body or sickness and they prayed for them and they were healed right there? You realize how much that speaks to that person about the reality of Jesus Christ? And we've seen that. Probably one of the more spectacular things, of course, is the deliverance of the demonic. That speaks to people of the power of God over the devil. And we need to quit dumbing things down and pretending like we got something we don't got. That's a lot of places. They act like we got truth and light and we got the gospel and all this stuff. Well, pardon me, but the Bible says that a gospel is the power of God and his salvation. The power of God. All right, so here's a couple things. There's a picture here of the lampstand, the menorah. Now, I'm going to give you a couple things and close with this. Remember the seven churches. And then the parables that Jesus gave in Matthew 13, there were seven parables of the kingdom. And then there were seven different churches that the apostle Paul sent letters to. I know he sent more letters than that, but there were seven churches that he sent them to and finally there's the seven feast of the Lord now I'm gonna show you how all this kind of comes together number one if you look at that lampstand is the middle branch remember Jesus said I'm the vine you're the branches and anybody that knows about the lampstand knows that that middle branch all the others are connected to it and it's called the shamus branch the servant branch from that fire all the other fires are lit it's from that one and so that represents Jesus, but it also represents the first church that Jesus Christ himself planted, represented in Ephesus. If you want to read about the Ephesian church, what you ought to read about is Acts chapter 19. You know how the church in Ephesus was born in the fires of revival, where Paul had to stay for two years because the whole province heard the gospel. There was such a powerful move of God that handkerchiefs and aprons and things that Paul were brought to him were taken out. Read this in Acts 19 for yourself. And they were put on sick people that were healed. They were put on demon-possessed people that were delivered of demons. It was such a powerful move of God that so many people were repenting of sorcery and witchcraft that they brought all their paraphernalia and had a huge bonfire. It was a radical move of God. That's how the church in Ephesus was born. And so when Paul writes the letter, the, the epistle that we read to the Ephesian church, you have to understand it was a revival church. And this was the church that represents the power of God, Jesus Christ, the, the actual church that he planted in the earth. And then you go from left to right, Smyrna the emperors that try to crush Christianity. Satan changes his tactics, Pergamos, where now they're trying to blend all the worldliness and Christianity created some kind of a hybrid, a perversion. And then Thyatira, the dark ages. All this was done away with. This is past. Now you start moving closer to our day and age. Sardis. The Great Reformation in 1517. Philadelphia, the great revivals in the 17, 18, 1900s, just great revivals. And then, of course, the last church, Laodicea. But just like the spring feast had been fulfilled, 
Jesus died on Passover, was in the tomb on unleavened bread, raised on first fruits, and then we know the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost and birthed the church. This is all past tense, but what's about to happen? Future tense. The Feast of Trumpets, the rapture. We're looking for the imminent return of Christ, the soon coming, for him to come and catch away his remnant bride. And I say it with love, but think about Matthew 7, 21. Many will say, Jesus said this, many, not a few, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we did all this stuff. We prophesied. We, we prayed for the sick and they were healed. We cast demons. We did all this stuff. And they're calling him Lord. And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you, you who worked iniquity. How incredibly scary that would be that there's so many people sprinkled throughout the institutionalized Christianity, the church world as we know it, that really don't even know the Lord. How scary it is. You know, some people die in their sin, they're, they're partiers, they're heathen, and it's no big surprise to them. But what's, what, how incredibly fearful it would be for the people that are going to stand before the Lord that thought their whole life that they were his and that they were going to heaven when they died. Let that be a warning to all of us. We need to make sure we're right with God. But the coming days, you see that Jesus is going to come and it's, it's prophetic of the Feast of Trumpets, the shofar blast. The Day of Atonement, that there's going to be that tribulation time in the earth. And then tabernacles where Jesus comes to dwell for a thousand years to sit on the throne of David in Israel and rule the earth from the nation, uh, rule the nations of the earth from Israel. That's coming. It surprises me how many people have never been taught prophecy, have never been taught the reality of these things. But let me give you this. If you want to look at the last page that you have, the church, here's the seven churches in Revelation 2 through 3. The seven parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13. The seven different churches that Paul wrote an epistle to. And then the seven feasts. And I'm going to tie them together. I believe there's something about this. Isn't God amazing that everything he does has purpose? Everything is significant. There is not a name in the Bible. There is not a number in the Bible that does not have relevance. And so that early church, the church of Ephesus, that revival church, the church that Jesus planted, a church that actually had power, is represented by the parable of the seed and the sower. They were faithfully, faithfully witnessing, sowing seed. How many places did Paul go and spread the gospel? And this is represented by Paul's epistle, obviously, to the Ephesians where we learn about spiritual warfare and also Passover, which is the first fruits of the feast, if you will. The purity of the gospel. That's the thing I love about the Passover time as we talk about that Passover meal. Man, it just, it's such a glorifying of Christ in the, in the crucifixion. You know, there's a lot of places nowadays where they won't even talk about the blood anymore. They, want, they remove the, the, any songs about the blood all right, that leads to number two, Smyrna. This is the parable of the wheat and the tares. How many knows that once persecution comes, remember Smyrna was the persecuted church. 
the emperors were trying to crush it when persecution comes the wheat and tares get separated real fast because every hypocrite every fake person is going to flee to the hills and they're not going to want to stick around and endure the persecution hello this is also represented by Paul's epistles uh, or epistle to the Philippians because it was in Philippi when, when he wrote um, to the Philippians that he was in prison. And in prison, he was teaching us to rejoice in all things and that he himself was in chains, but he, was, he had faith that the Lord was still moving. And you know, Paul said in Philippians, he said that I might know him. He wanted to have a relationship with the Lord. See, that's what Jesus is interested in. He's not interested in religion. I say this all the time, but you can go to hell in a choir robe. You know, I know you guys chuckle when I talk about that, but I mean, somebody can be in church. Let's just go through the whole thing. They can be in church. All right, they're up in the choir and they got the robe. They got their little hymnal. Man, they're going at it. They're singing. They could have just took communion and still got some of the wafer up in their teeth, right? They could have just been baptized and still got water in their hair and still burn in hell. You know why? Because religion doesn't save you. It is a relationship. It is being born again and having a living relationship with Jesus Christ. So this is the parable of the wheat and the tares and the church, um, the writings to the Philippian church, but also the unleavened bread where Jesus is our unleavened bread he is he is pure there's no yeast in him and um, you know just like there had to be this separation of the wheat and the tares God is purifying here purifying the church then you have Pergamos this was the marriage of the church and the world it becomes a socially acceptable gospel. Heaven forbid. How many of you guys know Jesus said, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you. Listen, if we're preaching the true gospel, there's, the world is not going to be comfortable with that message. If you're preaching a message that the world loves, there's something wrong. It's interesting, too, because the parable of the mustard seed. A lot of people don't know this, but if you go to Israel, the mustard, it's, it's a bush it's not some big tree i mean you're looking like a waist high bush you could be driving down the road and there would be this bush and got the yellow and it's like well what is that well that's the, the where we get the mustard and so it's interesting that jesus is saying that this little seed will grow into some big huge tree that the birds of the air will come and rest on its branches you have to understand that the lord is trying to say something here if we have eyes to see and ears to hear that there would be something that would grow bigger than it was ever intended and that the birds on the branches, Jesus taught us that the parable of the seed and the sower, the birds that came down and stole the seed were the demonic. How many knows that Christendom is pretty widespread around the world? A lot of people may say they're Christians, but not everybody really knows him. So this is the mustard seed parable. And what was the church that struggled with worldliness? Paul's epistle to the Corinthians. And then finally, this is the feast of first fruits. You know what? We need resurrection power to be able to deal with the worldliness. You need the power of the Holy Spirit to confront and deal with this. The next one's Thyatira. Man, the parable here, this was that Jezebel spirit, the paganism and the idolatry started coming into the church world. And it's interesting because the parable of the woman with the leaven, a lot of you guys aren't even familiar with this parable. It's very small and it's obscure, but if you read it, 
there was a woman that had kneaded uh, leaven into three batches of dough. That's all it says. And today, Jesus is so incredibly prophetic. To this day, right now, you can lump categories. I'm not saying Roman Catholicism is Christianity because I don't believe it truly is. But you have the Roman Catholics. Then you have the Greek Orthodox. You see like in Russia, Eastern Europe. And then you have Protestantism. And you can lump the three different dough there to represent the greater body of Christ, if you will. But it's interesting because this woman had put leaven in all three. And how many of you guys know there's a lot of leaven in the church world? A lot of yeast, and that represents sin. And so what was the epistle that dealed with having to get all that leaven out? Galatians. And then, of course, the Feast of Pentecost, Pentecostal power. I'm telling you to confront this stuff, to confront the world, which is Pergamos, and to confront the devil, which is Thyatira there. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. And then you have Sardis. This is like the parable of the treasure in the field. Martin Luther comes in and he says, you know what? It's not about being right with some religious system. It is putting your faith in Christ alone that you're born again. And it's by grace and through faith that you're saved. And so the gospel was preached. And this is the parable of the treasure in the field. The great treasure of the gospel. And Paul's epistle to the Romans where he so eloquently laid out the gospel. And this is connected with the Feast of Trumpets that God is heralding that you need to come out from among them and be my people, be born of my spirit, and get ready for my coming. Then the, number six, Philadelphia. This is the revival church, the restoration church. You have the parable of the pearl of great price. How many of you guys have, would say that there was a time, yes, you accepted Christ as your Savior? But then God began to move in your life. And man, it is like a pearl of great price. You felt God's presence. God began to move in your life. He began to touch you. The Lord began to speak to you. The Lord began to show you things. You began to have a relationship with him you never had before. This is the revival church. And this is the pearl of great price. And Jesus warned, don't cast your pearls to swine. Because you start talking about what God has done in your life and the religious Pharisees will trample that underfoot and attack. But this is the pearl of great price. What God has done in your life personally. And Paul, I believe it's connected with Paul's epistle to the Thessalonians because the, the Thessalonians had talked about the rapture. The coming of the Lord. And Jesus talked about Matthew 25, it's the wise virgins with extra oil that will be ready when he comes. And this also has to do with the Day of Atonement because the Day of Atonement to this day is a time where many people are really getting things right with God. They're making sure that they're ready. And among Christians, we need to be a bride who has made herself ready without spot or blemish. And then the last one is Laodicea. This is the parable of the dragnet. See, back in the day that Jesus lived, Peter, James, and John, James and John were probably pretty well off economically. Their father, they owned a family business. And, but this was a time when fishermen would go out and they had these nets that you could cast like on the side of the boat and pull it in. But they also had what was called a huge dragnet. 
and this would be when the boat was out pretty far they would cast this net behind them and it was huge and as they began to take the boat to shore it would just grab anything in its path and so when they got to shore it took more than one person and they had to pull this huge dragnet in on the on the shore there open it up and they had to go through and separate the good fish from the bad and so we're living in a time of the church of Laodicea where there's a falling away and the Lord is separating those that are truly his apart from those that are really not this is like Paul's epistle to the Colossians and it's a reference to the coming the tabernacles because when Jesus comes he's going to separate the sheep and goat nations but anyway listen the Lord is doing a great separation in the day that we live the gospel's coming in power and God is telling people to really make sure that they're ready for the coming of the Lord and I'm telling you for river of life to be ready because in the day that we're living there's a lot of spiritual resistance but Jesus is the one who has the key of David and he can open an effective door that no man can shut and no devil can shut and when he opens up a door that's what Paul was referencing whenever he wrote to the Corinthians he told them he said there is a great and an effectual door that is open to me and many oppose me it's great opposition but he was referring to the Acts 19 great revival that broke out in Ephesus and it was from Ephesus that the gospel went out to the whole region a two-year major revival that I mean broke things open in that region and this is this is what I believe is prophetic for us we need to be ready to move when God's moving because God is the God of the harvest he said some will plant some will water but God said I am the Lord of the harvest I am the God of increase and Jesus was the one that when the disciples were out there on the boat they had been fishing all night how many times have we felt like we've been fishing all night and we only caught a couple fish but Jesus said, I tell you what, cast the net on the other side of the boat. What was that? A supernatural harvest. There was no way that man could have done that. They had been trying all night with their human effort, and these were professional fishermen. But when Jesus spoke, cast the net on the other side, it was a supernatural act of a harvest. And this is what God's going to do in these latter days. He's going to open up harvest fields because the reason Jesus came was to seek and save the lost God is the God of the harvest he loves people he wants people to be saved and so he knows that we're living in dark times there's great spiritual warfare there's great resistance he knows that but yet Jesus is the one that has the key of David he will open doors that no man can shut there's going to be doors open for harvest fields supernaturally in the days to come not only here but I believe all over the world and you're going to continue to hear reports of places where revival's breaking out, harvests are coming in, and great, incredible things are happening. I don't know about you, but I want to be in on what God's doing. In the last days, he said, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. I want to be a part of that. He said, I will prepare a bride. The bride will be made ready for the coming of the Lord. I want to be a part of that. And of course, he talks about the end time harvest. I want to be right in the middle of that. So Lord, we thank you for the power of your word tonight. We bless you. And Lord, I pray that you'll get this in our hearts. Let us never be the same. Let us be challenged to believe your word 
and not necessarily accept everything that the institutionalized church has tried to put in us like a leaven that there's not going to be walls up there's things that have been put in traditions of men pet doctrines that were not biblical but lord we want to go after you and we want to read and study your word and, and for ourselves and believe it every bit of it so get your word in us let us never be the same and i thank you for the power of your spirit here in this place tonight we love you lord thank you for hearing and answering the prayers tonight in jesus name